0: Welcome to Sugar Not Me, I'm Ruth Faryeningrum and I'm Alexandra Kumala. For everyone who might feel like
1: all the episodes so far jumped deep into the history and politics of individual Southeast Asian countries, in this episode Andreas Harsono gives a brilliant overview of Southeast Asia and why it's such a unique and complex region.
0: Andreas Harsono is an international human rights activist, journalist, and book author. We talked to him about his book, Raise, Islam, and Power, which investigates power, religion, and nationalism, particularly in Indonesia. We asked him questions about this archipelago of over 17,000 islands and 1,300 ethnic groups. If this is the fourth most
1: populous country in the world with the largest reserve of natural resources, both historically and today, how come there is so little global knowledge on Indonesia?
0: In your new book, Race, Islam, and Power, Ethic and Religious Violence in post suharto Indonesia, you covered a lot of stuff about Indonesia from Sabang to Merauke. Okay? But if you could describe your book in one sentence, how would you describe it?
2: Bold. It's, it's a bold attempt to understand the imagination of Indonesia.
0: What do you mean of the imagination, Indonesia?
2: There is a book fair that Indonesia participated in Frankfurt a few years ago, and they define Indonesia as the imagination of 17,000 islands plus, something like that. It is legally, of course, a nation state. It is legally incorporated as the United Nations in December 1949. But we know for sure that this is a post-colonial nation state, that it is a state that comprises, God knows how many languages, linguistic groups, how many hundreds of religious groups, hundreds, not some, like what the government acknowledged. And I don't know how many hundreds of sultanates, kingdom, former, existing, in whatever extent they are. So this is an imagination. This is not a single entity.
0: So it's more like uh, what Benjamin Anderson said with the imagined community. Is that what what you're referring to? But he also uh, referring imagined community as a condition that both like sovereign, but yet limited.
2: Yeah, it is. I quoted Ben Anderson a lot in that book. It is not a coincidence that Benedict Anderson Probably the most important guru on nationalism is also an Indonesianist.
0: Is that rare to find?
2: It is a rare combination because Mm. Ben Anderson is not only one of the most important thinkers on modern nationalism, modern nation state, but he is also an expert on Southeast Asia. Mm. He speaks multiple languages, not only Spanish, German, European languages, but also Indonesian Malay, the Philippines Tagalog. He writes in Tagalog. He also writes in Thai. And if you talk about Tagalog, Thai, and Malay, both Indonesian Malay and Malaysian Malay, you know that these are vastly different languages. The Thai even has its own script. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, they have many similarities, of course, because the root of these languages is the, the astro language. But according to Ben Anderson, Southeast Asia is the most complicated region in the world. He likes to write about why there is no Nobel Prize in Literature winner in this part of the world, despite we have Jose Rizal, of course, of the Philippines, of Ramo of Java. Uh, because this region, Southeast Asia, has multiple languages. It has no... Spanish like Latin America, it has no French or English like Africa, or he has no it has no Arabic like the Middle East or North Africa. Yes, the languages here are relatively smaller than those global languages. At the same time, Southeast Asia has Muslim-dominated Indonesia and Malaysia, and Christian-dominated Philippines, of course, and Buddhist. Majority, you know, in Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, Vietnam. But at the same time, all of those countries have significant minorities. Christian minority in Indonesia, or Muslim minority in the Philippines, and of course Christian minorities in in Buddhist majority Southeast Asia, and also Muslim minority like the Rohingya in in Myanmar. So this region is the most complicated in the world but at the same time, also the most violent in the world, like what Michael Fatih said. And of all Southeast Asia, the country that killed the most is, no question, Indonesia, although proportionately, Cambodia killed their own people bigger than Indonesia. At the same time, we used to have a big war, the Vietnam War, in Southeast Asia. Again, that fact that military development in Cambodia, Laos, and of course, to a lesser degree, in Indonesia, Thailand, Myanmar. And don't forget, because of the Vietnam War, we had the 1965 massacre in Indonesia.
0: If Indonesia is a very complicated country and it's one of the biggest country in the world, but why the global attention is lacking in Indonesia? I mean, like the global attention of Indonesia, it's not that big. What do you think? Very
3: good questions. Very good questions.
0: Especially after nine eleven, for instance, because if America wants to fight the when they have like Islamophobia, Indonesia has the biggest Muslim population in the world. So I'm just wondering, like, why Indonesia, as like a big Muslim country, hasn't been uh, the central of conversation.
3: There is a British writer who wrote Indonesia as being the most underreported country in the world. Another country is Bangladesh in terms of their size, it is also underreported. Uh, in, in the case of Indonesia, it is interesting because coincidentally, before big killings happened in Indonesia, or during the big killings happened in Indonesia, the global media attention were overwhelmed by other major events. You too are living in New York, you know how big the media industry in New York are Intellectual life, etc. New York is probably the most important uh, city in the world. But just after the fall of Suharto, and when mass killings were happening in Indonesia, from Aceh to Sambas to Jaswa, the Bali bombing, Papua, Amahera, Kolnate. So when, when all those mass killings, the killing of the Madhuris in Kalimantan, very gruesome, people were being beheaded jump into rivers, headless bodies, children, women, or the sectarian violence in the North Island, 911 happened in New York. And then the US invaded Afghanistan, later invaded Iraq. And of course the US media attention, New York media attention, were shifted into Afghanistan and Iraq. If if 911 did not happen, their attention would be much bigger on it, and also the attention of the US government, the Congress, the White House, and many other department in the U.S. It also happened with 1965. When 1965 was about to happen, President John F. Kennedy ordered U.S. so-called advisor, military advisor, to go to Vietnam. And then dead bodies began to arrive back to the U.S. And you, you might know 1965, the summer of 1965, it was a, a tumultuous period in, in America, just like the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. That was also at the height of the key in Indonesia. This, the U.S. media attention were overwhelmed with protests against the Vietnam War and the Vietnam War itself, of course. And then the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. Thus, they shifted the journalists, the media, the editors, the best writers, the intellectual, public intellectual to think about either Vietnam or. Afghanistan, or Iraq, and later Syria, because of the Islamic State in Syria, they paid less attention on this part of the world.
0: But I mean, during Suharto era, there's, there, there, He was so protective of Indonesian image, right? And do you
1: think it's intentional in a way because the U.S. does have industrial and political interests in Indonesia that they want to be very careful in reporting about things happening in Indonesia? Because at the end of the day, media is owned and controlled by people who have political interests.
3: Do you know the term, the domino theory? Domino theory, made by Harry Truman, President Harry Truman. Mm. He argued that if the U.S. did not
2: have, at the time, friends to control into China, just like domino, it will be falling apart, country by country, card by card, the domino card, from Vietnam to Thailand, Cambodia, Malaysia, and Indonesia. And according to him, according Harry Truman, the most important part of this domino theory is Indonesia, because it is statistically located between the two oceans, Indian
3: Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. Between the waterway, the Strait of Malacca, is between, the Indian Ocean. If people from Europe are going to transport by ship to China or Japan, they have to cross Sumatra. And also geographically, and not to say mineral richness. Thus, Harry Truman created that theory with Indonesia in mind. And then the U.S. got involved in the Vietnam War. Not Vietnam per se, but because of this domino field, it will go into Indonesia.
1: Speaking of other countries with who have influence on Indonesia, and having spoken about the nation state and how, you know, in the book you also wrote how that was something that was influenced by the Dutch colonization, basically uniting You know, hundreds and thousands of different ethnic tribes and kingdoms and sultanates. In the book, you highlighted the fact that 90% of the government officials and the ruling elite during the Netherlands Indies, um, uh, the Dutch East Indies, were native, were what, you know, people called natives. And then when Japan unite, tried to unite Southeast Asia and then invaded Indonesia, many of the Indonesian nationalists help uh, Japan. And as someone who, I guess, grew up in the island of Java and learned history from the textbooks, you know, that of course were written in a biased way, there's this narrative that, okay, so the Dutch, colonized and they're like the evil people and they're the reason for all of the problems in indonesia um and also i did not,
3: I did not use the word evil people,
1: people right no 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 i'm saying like the teachings and textbooks but in your book you actually challenge that fact and so i guess like my big my biggest curiosity is what is the actual truth about Dutch colonization? Like, do we actually know um, and have information about what really happened in terms of the Dutch helping build infrastructure or helping educate people, whether there was really forced labor in certain areas and no forced labor in other areas, whether they just you know, live there. Like, we had an episode with Ruth Ogetai who said, you know, in Papua, the Dutch just live there and they... um, They didn't
0: colonize the people. They didn't
1: colonize. They had uh, no violence and things like that. Whereas I feel like in Jakarta, a lot of people say that the tension between groups were because the Dutch had an apartheid ruling system that separated the like what people call the natives and then the Chinese and the Arabs. And so like there's so many different information that different people hold. And I was just wondering if you can comment on that. I know that's kind of a long. Uh,
3: the, the Netherlands English was ruled differently between what they call inner islands, Java, Madura, and Bali, and the outer islands, Sumatra, Kalimantan, and the island. In the inner island, basically the Dutch had what we call direct rule. In the outer island, it is indirect rule. Especially, you know, Kalimantan, Papua, even they did not pay attention until mid twentieth century.
0: But what about Banda, the island of Banda, because they were fighting with the British over nutmeg, right? Is well, it, they, was Banda they, part of the inner area or the in outer? In
3: terms of administration, outer. We have to differentiate. The VOC, the Dutch in this uh, company, that did trade, quote go successfully until 18,000. After 18,000, it was the Dutch kingdom. Uh, the VOC was a huge company. In terms of asset, one researcher used to write that their total asset is bigger than the biggest five technology companies in the U.S. today, Facebook, Google, Amazon. So the VOC was so big. Greece. But then corruption, uh, mismanagement problem made the FOC cannot handle the trading posts in, in this archipelago, including in Ambon, the most important trading post then, and also Bantam. just it was handed over to the Dutch, Dutch kingdom. They needed a capital, what we call it today a capital, and Ambon was too far. Banda was too far from again the Strait of Malacca. Thus they moved uh, there is a Dutch. Governor-General called Jan-Peter Kuhn, who built Batavia, now Jakarta. Batavia was named after his hometown in Germany, not in the Netherlands. He was Dutch-German, a mixed blood colonial officer. So that is the thing. What Alexandra was trying to say is the level of racism and mistreatment in the Netherlands Indies was obviously different. Papua was fortunately treated the best in terms of education, in terms of health service, there were more cinemas in Jayapura under the Dutch than under Indonesia.
1: What? Wow. <laughs> wow. There wow. were
3: 22 cinema buildings under the Dutch in Jayapura. I don't know how many they have. They have not. My mother-in-law is a Madurish lady. She is in her <gasps> 80s now. Until today, she insisted that the Dutch treated people in Pontiana.
2: Much better than Indonesia.
0: But what did exactly the Dutch people do in Papua at that time? Because as far as I know, they didn't know that there was like the biggest gold mountain in the world by then, right? Well, they did. They did. They did? They did. Oh.
3: In the 1930s.
1: So were they eventually going to, you know, exploit the gold and copper anyway? They wanted to.
3: The thing is, it was bound up when Europe was about to enter the Second World War. It was a huge war. How many people were killed during the Second World War? I don't know the number. 75 million. So that Second World War, of course, affected the Netherlands Indies. The Netherlands did not was bankrupt. Without the US helping the Netherlands post-World War two, it will have difficulties to, to rebuild. So the Netherlands Indies was not in their mind. Moreover, Papua, they wanted to rebuild the so-called motherland, the Netherlands.
0: So I guess I'm curious, so if the mistreatment or treatment of the Dutch were different in Indonesia, then the shared pain that that the history told us, it's not 100% true then, right? Oh, Java was treated
2: very
0: well. Well, Java, yes, yes. But I mean, in the process of combining all of these areas together,
1: like using using the Dutch as the common enemy to try to unite Indonesia to build nationalism is probably um,
0: yeah because they said that they, they use the integral integralist idea and then they want to come up with this organic unity but then what's the what's what really unites us back then if the experience the of past. colonization the, I'm sorry
2: the the one that united us. The one that united indonesia yeah
0: like, but, nothing yeah i mean like in terms of colonization by the dutch yes but the treatment or the pain that the people have been experiencing were different than when they say like there's so many blood uh, indonesian blood has been sacrificing before the independence or the dutch held indonesians but i mean that idea is not completely true all over Indonesia. That's, I guess that's course, what I'm trying absolutely. to say. So, I mean, so what is the base of Indonesia really?
2: The one that united Indonesia
3: is international order, not because of internal strife. Mm. Indonesia was made as the Netherlands Indies and the UN was established in late 1945. They have a principle that it is better the borders of the post-colonial world like the colonial borders. Why? If you change the border, it will be bloodier. That is their argument. Thus, India is for India despite the partition with Pakistan and later Pakistan with Bangladesh. To make things more complicated, the British, the British India also included Myanmar today. But that was good and good accident from this official point of view. And also in Indonesia. The Indonesia was the extension of the Netherlands Indies of course there are problems how is about east timor a tiny part of the eastern part of timor island Where timor was part of the Netherlands indies but east timor was of the portuguese it's so tiny that's why or goa in india it was a part of uh, portuguese india invaded goa most mostly smoothly without any problem then the invasion of goa prompted the world the u.s australia to think that if Indonesia was to invade East Timor, it will be more or less the same like gold. It will be smooth. Uh, just like how Indonesia invaded West Papua in 1962, just like also how Indonesia invaded Sarawak Sabah, uh, also in the 1960s. But then the British uh, disagreed and they helped Sarawak Sabah to resist and Brunei to resist Indonesia invasion. Because uh, the war is not as, as simple as that principle that post-colonial war should be similar with the colonial border. Uh, and that kind of thinking that need to be, I think, need to be repressed. But again, to manage the war, now the UN has 197 countries. It's not that easy. Historical accident happened.
1: So speaking of the UN and um, international aid agencies, you wrote in the book that $7 billion of funding and aid for the Aceh tsunami yeah. went into reconstruction for Aceh. Um, and then after the reconstruction, Aceh started showing its true colors, which yeah. is a lot of violence against religious and ethnic minorities. And also, a lot. I think this isn't the first time that people have written about how funding from international organizations have actually resulted in violence. Um, So I guess my question is, do international aid agencies knowingly fund, do international aid agencies know that when they fund, you know, like humanitarian aid efforts that the money can very easily be misappropriated?
2: Yes and no. They knew, in theory, that
3: this kind of money can be misused. But at the same time, it was a tsunami. 126 people were dead. It's, it was about humanity. The Chinese was lucky because the world was ready to help. There was no other natural disaster. There was no other earthquake or tsunami or nuclear accident happened. Uh, Before that, uh, shortly after that. If there was, I don't think the system to Aceh and also the pressure to have a peace agreement between Indonesia and Free Aceh Movement might take place. And I don't think the war will will end without the European Union took part and pressure Indonesia to negotiate with the Free Aceh Movement.
0: Do you think that... Embedded in our notion of nationalism lies the ideology of Islamic populism? If so, why do Muslims kill each other back home?
3: Well, Christians also kill each other. Buddhists also kill each other. Hindus also kill each other. It is not, nothing strange. Uh, Muslims are being killed more by Muslims than by <laughs> Christians, according to one research. And of course, Christians are being killed more by Christians than by other. other believers. Uh, What does it mean? It means that that is the real world. That is the real world. To organize so-called religious solidarity is important. At the same time, it is important to to work, to collaborate, you know, interfaith dialogue, interfaith work. It is very important. But I do not
2: deny that building solidarity within a religion is easier than, than building interfaith collaboration, mm. but not inter-government collaboration. Mm. The world is, is more complicated
3: than saying that this is a Christian solidarity or this is a Muslim solidarity. The world doesn't work that way.
0: Right. But I mean, in Indonesia, religion has been used time and time again as...
3: It's nothing new.
0: I guess I just find it very ironic because I mean yeah sure it happens everywhere around the world, but growing up in Indonesia, reading Pancasila every Monday, like how could this still happen? Is it just because, like
3: because most Indonesians do not understand that we cannot move forward as a society without trying to understand the others, and working with the others, not only working with our co-religion core or our ethnic groups, or our linguistic group, it doesn't work that way. It is especially important for the so-called majority, whether the Japanese, being the largest ethnic group in Indonesia, or the so-called Sunni Muslim. Being the largest, so called, the largest religious group in Indonesia. Indonesia will not work that way. Indonesia needs interfaith collaboration, or even with those who don't believe. As long as Indonesia does not want to revoke the discriminatory plasmid as long as Indonesia does not want to revoke the toxic, so called religious harmony regulation. And to revoke more than 700 discriminatory regulations made in the name of Islam, whether it is, you hijab know, regulation, curfew at night, child marriage, polygamy, whatever, it is also difficult to move forward, to move forward with sciences with art, with international collaboration, the quality of our education, the quality of our journalism. We are going to be being kept on overwhelmed by, by domestic issues that are not necessary.
0: I agree, yeah. But what do you think that makes Indonesian people get so emotional when talking about nationalism and Pancasila? Because we all don't understand yet the essence of Pancasila or because it, it's just never there? The essence of...
3: It was a political compromise. I, I work in, in my Grace Islam Islamic power, how Pancasila was created, basically at the very, very last evening of August 17, 1945, uh, when the East Indonesia delegation approached Muhammad Hatta and saying that this so-called Islamic Sharia in our constitution uh, will degrade a certain number of the population, especially in eastern Indonesia, and second class And don't forget, at the time, South Asia, Singapore, Malaysia, Vietnam, Indonesia, was the, for the first time ever, for modern centuries, was divided into three administrative powers. One in Singapore, that also included Sumatra, and Java is by itself. And then Eastern Indonesia, Kalimantan, included it in Makassar. And they said, if this so-called Islamic Sharia constitution was to be held it is called the Chakrabah Charter, East Indonesia will not join Indonesia. That was a, a serious thinking to the extent that Muhammad Hatta, Sukarno, others and the five other top Muslim leaders in the independence preparation agreed to scrap the word Islamic Sharia in the Constitution. Thus, Pancasila was born. So, Pancasila was a political compromise. Pancasila was a compromise made by the secularists and the Islamists that this state will be neither an Islamic state nor a secular state. That is the essence of the compromise. Why not a secular state? Because East Indonesia, including the Christian, were also kind of agree that religion should play a role in this country. But over the last seven decades, that compromise had been eroded more and more, especially after the fall of Sudan. Like
0: right, you mentioned about uh, religious harmony versus religious freedom at like one glance, I, I think religious harmony, people who, who don't know might equate it with religious freedom, don't you think? Which is it pretty is. pretty, I don't know,
3: tricky term. Religious harmony uh, basically emphasizes that the majority has the veto power over the minorities. If you take a look at the structure of the so-called religious harmony forum, the majority should always have more food than the minorities in terms of you know, building a house of worship, in terms of agreeing a religious festival, whether it is okay for cis men, cis women to wear Santa hat during Christmas. Thus, it is not equal among citizens with different religious backgrounds. That is religious argument. That the majority has the veto power over the minority. It doesn't mean that the minorities cannot celebrate Christmas. It doesn't mean that the Hindus cannot celebrate the Hindu festival. They can, as long as the, the Muslim majority agree. It is different from religious freedom in which all citizens, whatever your faith, uh, or, you know, if you are non, a non-believer, it is equal. Indonesia has shifted from religious freedom into religious harmony in 2006. The architect, the one who made the final push, is Ma'ruf Ahmed, now the vice president of Indonesia. But he was not the one who initiated this idea. This idea had been living for quite some time, for decades, in Indonesia.
1: Speaking of political figures, and the current like political administration, I think there has been debate among dissidents that the current Jokowi administration is just as authoritarian as the Suharto regime.
3: I disagree
1: with that. You disagree with that? You, you think that it's still not as bad?
3: <laughs> uh, I don't want to compare because comparison has so many flaws I simply don't
0: want to come Do you, Do you think we already passed the Posuharto era now with Jokowi?
3: Of course not. It is still Posuharto era.
0: No, I mean all the because there's this sense of like breath of fresh air with Jokowi, right? like eight years ago, almost eight years ago. Uh, as in because he's not part of like a
1: political elite who who like he was just a businessman who wasn't, you know, like in the political elite circles. Is
0: Yeah, and then also when he worked with
1: uh, a Ahok, there's this like,
0: mm-hmm. it's
1: a perfect combo. But, but now I feel like the, you know, um, the current administration has a lot of political elites who I guess they say, Dissidents, they build dynasties of political families.
3: I happen to know both of them. I know Ahok more than than Jokowi. Ahok used to dine here. Uh, my, My argument is political change should not rely on a single leader or two leaders. Political change should come from within the society. If you read Barack Obama from his Land, he also said that. And this is the, the president of the most powerful nation on earth. He said that he was the president of the United States. He was working from the White House. But change did not come necessarily from the American president himself. He had to build the work from the grounds. That's why uh, Obama kept on aiming at his work toward the younger. American, the young generation, the millennial, because he believed firmly, and I think he's right, that change does not come from an American president. It should come from the fathers, from the grown-up, from grassroots activists, Black Lives Matter, LGBT movement in the U.S. In Indonesia, that movement is so weak. And of course, it is polarized because, because of political Islam
1: that reminds me about uh so before this this uh i did this interview i talked to student activists from uh gajamada university and they they're young activists um, and basically they said that they went to a talk that you did at ugm and someone asked you about Papuan independence and your response to the students at UGM was that you think Papua will never be independent. I guess, could you clarify um, what you meant by that?
3: Uh, My position is I do not support nor oppose independent movement. That is my position. Why? Because independence is a very political issue. It's difficult to measure, including on Kashmir, including on Gibber, including on Kurdistan. I neither support nor oppose independence, just like two other things. I want to make clear my position. I do not support nor oppose any boycott, uh, boycott Israel or boycott China, or boycott whatever. Uh, The other thing that I usually do not want to get in touch with is the so-called peace movement, uh, peace negotiation. I do not oppose it nor support it. So thus in Papua, I do not support independence, but I also do not oppose it. What I'm trying to do is uh, to protect Pap one who want to talk about independence, Papuan one who want to raise the Morning Star. I need to remind Indonesian officials that there is nothing illegal raising the, the Morning Star flag under international law. So that is basically my position. I'm Pap ones who understand my position, or the Achenis, or the Moluccan, or the East Timorese in the past. But of course, some Papuans are angry. Uh, they thought that I am an nkrp Harga guy. I'm not that, that kind of Indonesian I want... Indonesian is a historical accident. It is an international agreement that Indonesia exists. My life is too short to think about, you know, fighting for Papua independence or whatever independence, either or, or peace agreement in whatever part of the world. You know, we live, if we are lucky, maybe 90 years old. If we are not lucky, maybe 60. That, that 60, 19 years old is too short to do that kind of work. I want to do something that, that is more reachable. I'm thinking about 30 years, 40 years in my life. I write books, hoping that in the next, hopefully, 30 years or 40 years, it is still being relevant.
1: If I can ask a follow-up question, like independent of uh, your stance, objectively, from from the research that you do, do you feel, do you see Papua following the footsteps of East Timor, um, and also? No. No. Okay. Is there, I guess, is there a way for Papua to be independent without being given a referendum from Indonesia? Or is that, is a referendum from Indonesia the only way that Papua can become independent?
3: If there is a World War Three,
0: World War III? I feel like we're already in World War Three.
3: <laughs> I mean, I told you, World War II killed 75 million people. It changed the world structure. Because of World War II, many, many colonial countries were given independence from Africa, Asia, Latin America, you, know, you name them, Brazil, Argentina, India, uh, especially Africa and Asia. They were given independence after the end of World War II. Why? Because the world suffered a lot, and the gate of history was open, the status quo was weakened. The West, I mean the European and the American were weakened. In Thus, uh, India was the spearhead of this campaign, and South Africa was later under Manila. Papua is a tiny nation. It's so tiny. It's only less than 2 million people, indigenous people. And the world is not going to sacrifice many of their priorities for the sake of these 2 million people. Sorry to say that. I'm not saying that the Papuan not suffering under Indonesia, they suffer a lot. I know many, many Papuan friends who used to have, or their parents used to have a comfortable life under Indonesia, this miserable. I know Papuan friends whose parents spoke Dutch, meaning very highly educated, but today they barely even able to speak English, nor to study in New York like you guys do. Economically, socially, culturally, they suffer a lot. But the world, I'm sorry to say, is not going to change their priorities just because of West Papua. It is better to tell young Indonesians like you to treat Papuan with respect, not to treat them as, you know, smelly, uh, primitive, bare chested, uh, dark skinned, curly hair smelly people. Uh, this is something that young Indonesians need to know, that not one suffer under Indonesia.
0: And do you think with the Black Lives Matter movement in Indonesia that helped slightly change this?
3: I hope so, but it doesn't. It doesn't. I talk with many, many, many influential leaders of the Black Lives Matter in the US. They even do not know where Indonesia is.
1: Uh, I mean, as in, as in do you feel like Um, young Indonesians have um, now opened up their eyes, you know, because the BLM movement sort of gave awareness about what's happening in Papua? Or is that still very...
3: Well, you do, you're in the field. Talk to any Black Lives Matter movement in New York or in D.C. or in the U.S. Ask them about West Papua. I don't think they, they know where it is. It doesn't mean that they don't care. The thing is, the level of of knowledge about West Papua in the U.S. is so tiny, so so. Even tiny. though, yeah.
1: even though the United States benefit so much from their natural, yeah, research. but
0: the what the regular people they don't know, yeah, yeah.
3: The U.S. economy, for yeah. yeah. free port of Indonesia is tiny to compare with the overall income. When Joshua Oppenheimer's film *The Egg of Killings, was nominated for the Oscar, I thought, if only. He won't film. It will raise awareness about mm. Indonesia and the US. Don't talk about the US, even in Australia, the neighboring country. Mm. Of course they know Indonesia much better than the US. But you know, mostly Bali, vacation. They don't know about the West Papua.
1: Can I can I shift a little? So, you called what's happening in Papua the secret war, and what happened in East Timor the forgotten war. Um, and the unknown war is the massacre of ethnically Chinese Indonesians in Kalimantan. Uh, I'm curious about this other unknown massacre of Chinese Indonesians, too, that apparently happened in Pariaman, yeah. But apparently, like, there's no historical record about it. And apparently, it's just you pass it down like a, a generational, like, word of mouth stories. What do you call it? Like, oral history that's passed down in that area only. And yet, apparently, it's something that's, like, actually really strong, where, like, there isn't a single ethnically Chinese Indonesian that lives there anymore because of the massacre. I guess my question is like, why, why do you think that has been so secret, so unknown?
3: Many, many reasons. One is we do need more researchers. There is a lack of qualified researchers in Indonesia. Not only researchers, also qualified journalists, qualified academics, there is a lacking you are studying in New York, you can compare the level of education, the level of reading material, the content of the libraries in New York to be compared with the libraries of the academic world in Jakarta. It is very, very far. And not to, not to say places like Pariyama. Once I went to Merauke in Papua and I met with a, a chief uh, there in Merauke, I introduced myself. That I'm a writer, a journalist, I'm a reporter. And he said, oh, I know that. You are the storyteller. So in his world, people like me are called the storyteller. And he told me, uh, Bapa Andreas, you are a storyteller. Your role is important, just like storytellers here in, in Narawato. I said, why storytellers are important? And he said, because the strength of my suku, my tribe, depends on the storyteller. Of course, there are merchants, there are warriors, there are farmers, many farmers. There are many workers in his tribe. But he pointed to me that the strength of the society is with the storyteller, and you are a storyteller. To answer your questions, Alexander, why many killings, mass killings in Indonesia are not so? Because there is no storyteller in Pariyama. If you don't have a storyteller, your society is just like this dental me is much, much weaker. Storyteller can be an, a village elder who understood the story, who write down things, who keep a record. A storyteller could be a journalist who witness, who tried to witness all important events, including masculine in his or her society. A storyteller could be an academic, could be a dancer, who try to record things could be a lecturer uh, basically people who try to understand the society where where they live and this is what is lacking in Indonesia we do have many many docent academics you know but the quality of academic life in Indonesia is so poor Just the other day a researcher Madis uh, Supiana of Singapore he wrote about how you can order A company to write your thesis in Indonesia, bureau scripting, bureau from undergraduate, master level, doctoral level, you can do that. It is true because I used to have just checking his his language, his English, uh, his PhD thesis. It is so 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 burdened with propaganda and government purposes rather than trying to find to think, you know, about knowledge, about science, about art. This is so lacking. And not to say, like, what Ben Edison said, the languages. In a bit to get understood on the international level, you need to write either in English, Spanish, Mandarin, French, Arabic, but not in Bahasa Indonesia. It is not an international or global language yet.
0: Do you think now that we have a Minister of Education who is young is there going to be a difference no no no
3: again i don't want to rely on an individual Najib Makarim is he might contribute something for the education in Indonesia. he did something well with this pandemic in which he decided to provide phone credit to millions of students especially in remote areas uh, but again the Minister of Education has been politicized over the last seven decades. We need more than just one minister to undo the damages that have been done over our educational institution.
1: I actually wanted to say, if I can rewind a little, like talking about storytellers in Indonesia, I feel like a lot of the storytellers In Indonesia, are Javanese, um, like in terms of filmmakers and authors. I'm actually wondering if you feel like there's a new form of Javanese imperialism through popular culture. Like, do you feel no?
3: I don't want to call it imperial cultural imperialism. No, an author is an author, an author usually works for humanity. The term storyteller is for the strength of the society, not to invade another society. That is the message that I learned from the Pap1 chief in Naraoke. You can ask me, tell me, let's say, 10 most important thinkers from Japan.
0: For me, Pram is the, the, the best one.
3: <laughs> Number two?
0: Recently, Eka Kurniawan. He has sense of
1: humor that... Number three? So so this is biased. I, I think Bugadis, Gadis Arifia.
3: Yeah. Well, you can, can have the name on and on. Don't forget Abdurman Wahid. I think Who is is not the president, but he is also a thinker. Now let me move to the second largest ethnic group, Sundanese. Who are the ten most prominent Sundanese thinkers?
0: Are you gonna I was born and grew up in Bantuk. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, let's go to the third largest ethnic group, Malay.
0: Abdul Muiz.
3: Uh, yeah, okay. It's fair.
0: Uh, uh, what's his name? Alatas. B.J. Oh, is uh, he from
3: Somalia? He's half Japanese. Habibi is not a thinker. He was a president.
0: Engineer. He's an engineer.
3: Well, well, of course. Uh, well, you can say that he's a thinker too. Uh, there is one ethnic group in Indonesia whose intellectual presence is disproportionate.
0: which one is it
3: ethnic chinese who are the 10 most important g chinese it's okay. so okay who else
0: aris budiman.
3: aris budiman who else
0: what's her
1: name oh my god she um she's a professor at i think petra um she does research on ethnic Chinese minority. Well, there is
0: a professor in UK. Uh,
3: Sun Ching Marching. Including who already passed away, who are they? The Japanese, of course, included Sukarno, don't forget. Don't forget Sutan Syahril. Oh, ah, yeah, yeah, Sutan Syahril,
0: yes.
3: Yeah. From Sumatra, from the Malaya. And don't forget Tomo Mangun, uh, Johannes Bilyarta, Mangun Wijaya, Tomo Mangun. Ethnic Chinese, I think the most important is Kwe Ching. Oh, is he? He wrote a book called Indonesia Bara dan Api.
0: Oh, he is the writer Ah, oh.
3: the best prose ever written, according to Benet in Indonesia.
0: But Pram he says that there is a thing called Java Fascism or Javanism in Indonesia.
2: Yeah, but I'm not talking about the storyteller.
3: I'm talking about that that is a different method. This is the military, this is uh
1: Right, I guess when, when, I asked, when I asked that question about Storyteller, um, I was thinking like filmmakers and there's a lot of films that uh, talk about Indonesian political figures, um, like there, there's films from, uh, about everyone from like Chokro Aminoto to like Habibi Ainun, um, and of course like the filmmakers have their own biased point of views and tell the story from their perspective which a lot of the times have not been challenged. They're just like, oh, this is what I learned growing up. So like, this is what it is. And a lot of these films continue to feed into forms of blind nationalism, I feel. And, and I guess like, I wonder if that is a new form of popular culture that's just continuously shaped by the Javanese point of view, because like a bunch of filmmakers are just like Javanese.
3: This is, this is let's call it bias other than blind national bias, not because they want to do it on purpose, but because of their limited knowledge. Most people in Indonesia, especially those who live on the island of Java, imagine Indonesia from their limited knowledge of Java.
1: I guess like because I feel like recently, um, talking about popular culture, I feel like recently there's just been a lot. For instance, when I visited Indonesia in 2017, and I haven't been like, back in, I don't know, like 9, 10, 11, 12, whatever. Uh, but that that one year that I spent, I realized that there's this new kind of like Javanese pride uh, in terms of like how people treat batik day. It's like such a big thing that wasn't such a big thing back in the day. And then there's all of these like new restaurants that is the concept of the restaurant is based on like Javanese kingdoms and Javanese like royalty. And I feel like those didn't exist back in the day. So that made me question like, are these like new forms of like Javanese supremacy that is happening that people just don't realize is, is actually Javanese supremacy? Cause you know, you don't like, you don't see that with other ethnic, you don't see that kind of power in popular culture with other ethnic groups.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: I agree. Is this, did this- this has happened because of proximity. Their, their imagination of Indonesia is is because of proximity.
0: So you did research for like 15 years, uh-huh. right? To write this book. And you have this question in the beginning of your book. In the beginning, you said, what kind of nationalism do Indonesian opinion leaders provo- uh, promote? So after 15 years, have you finally find the answer? To your question,
2: it is rather limited. It is, it is narrow. It is narrow-minded nationalism. There are some who understand humanity. Nationalism should be based on humanity. Those who understand that nationalism should not be equalized with Islam or Sunni Islam, because there are many who equalize Indonesia with Islam. There Mm -hmm. is a slogan now called and either Sharia, Indonesia with Islamic Sharia. Of course, there is a growing number of, of Muslims who believe that Indonesia should be more and more sharia Islamized. Of course, it is. it will not work. It will not work for a multicultural Indonesia, or at least a moderate Muslim Indonesia. So that is the narrow-minded nationalism that is growing in Indonesia. It is a dangerous nationalism because it will consider the others as enemies or at least to be aligned with their imagined nationalism. That the Papuans should be Indonesianized or should be Javanized. That the Papuans should be Islamized because they are, of course, not Islam. Or ethnic Chinese are considered to be foreigners despite, you know, influencing a lot in Indonesian culture. I think Chinese is omnipresent in Indonesia. They are everywhere, every sector, geographical location. Or the Chinese are being too radical in Islam. Or many other things. Indigenous people are being discriminated against. LGBT, not to say. So that kind of nationalism is, is not healthy for the citizen who live here.
0: I guess I'm curious when... There are people who say that NKRI harga mati, but then we have a case in your book in Miangas that they have this flexibility. If on Monday I want to side with Indonesia, it's fine. And then on Sunday. Like they can
1: fly the Filipino flag um, without a problem.
0: Yeah, that's very unique in a way. I mean, in correlation, and with... and
1: they don't get attacked for doing that. Or I mean, if they get attacked, it's very different from people in Papua or previously East Timor flying um, their independence flag. The correct
3: reaction because they are just doing that to attract attention. Just like the Mianas people, the Papuan also raise the morning star because they want to, well, to express themselves. They are angry. They are upset. There is nothing wrong raising your voice. But of course, Indonesia did not invade Myanmar. Mianas is too small. When I went there, there are only 600 something people living there. You just move your finger to control Mianas. Unlike Papua, of course, Papua is seven times bigger than Java. So in
0: 1996, when the Indonesian press, uh, their protest to have freedom of speech, you said in your book that the press were in between two choices, either demand democracy, or press freedom, right? And you guys went with the press freedom. Why not democracy first?
3: The question is like, egg or chicken first? I believe that journalism, press freedom, and democracy were born together. Mm,
0: that's what I was thinking too. They
3: will to die together. That's why I believe so much in, in quality journalism. I believe so much in press freedom. But historically, we made Printing machine first, and we publish newspaper first before public opinion emerges. There is a very limited time difference between publishing a story and shaping public opinion and later democracy. So, that's in that debate that involved Marci Lamsi Manjuta, one of the, the most important speakers at the time. Uh, he said, He's not the journalist himself, but he he told us in a very limited space, in a very restrained financial situation. If we have to choose, I will choose journalism. If I have a lot of money, if we have a lot of time, of course, I will have the judiciary, the election system, so we can elect much, much better uh, legislators, representatives. I will work with many, many NGOs, labor union, women's rights, LGBT rights, indigenous people rights, and many, many other things that if I have the money, I will work with all of them. But I don't have that luxury, so I would just media freedom.
0: But I'm just curious, like, were people at that time, in 1996, were not ready for democracy or not aware of the importance of having democracy yet because there weren't many... They were
3: aware, the thing is, Democracy is not a simple concept. It has to be translated into Mm -hmm. election. But election, per se, is not enough. We have election here, formal election, but civil liberties are not here yet. Quality journalism is not here yet. Mm -hmm. We elect our representatives mainly because of ethnic similarities or religious similarities. We are being poisoned with unrealistic Campaign promises, and not to say bribery, and not to say very expensive campaign in Indonesia to the extent that only rich people, business people, or those who are supported by the business people can win election. And of course, this is what make the growth of oligarchy in Indonesia is a triangle. A family has a business interest and security interest, police, military, or you know, prosecutors, and political interests, political parties. And these are families that have this kind of three three side interests, are the ones that won election. Rahman Toleng, a boogie thinker, writer, uh, said that Indonesia democracy is oligarchy democracy, a democracy that is dominated by the oligarchs.
0: How journalism changed since 1996 to now? Has it changed? Drastically?
3: The most important thing is we scrapped the so called publishing license, Surat ijin. We did not need to have a government license to publish anything now. But the challenges are there are still many, many criminal defamation articles in our criminal code, in our internet law, in many other laws in Indonesia. We also managed to set up the press council which is independent, to mediate a dispute between journalists and, and anyone who complain about their reporting. That is a, a step forward. So one, we get rid of the publishing license, and second, we have an independent press council. But the standard of journalism in Indonesia is still pretty low. Just yesterday, I tweeted a finding from the Alliance of Independent Journalists, about the low quality of three news organizations, Tempo, The Tech, and Merdeka. And these are leading mainstream news organizations who, instead of reporting, but inside hate. Journalism is still a huge boomer for Indonesia, quality journalism. But you know, Ruth, that the number of journalists, how many journalists were there? 20 years ago, less than 7,000. How many today? Nearly more than 150,000, nearly 200,000. So in 20 years, Indonesia has skyrocketing in terms of the number of so-called journalists and newspaper. When Suharto stepped down from power, was only 256. Now, according to the Press Council, we have 43,000 so-called news organizations, mostly on the internet. It's so a boom, boom, boom. Of course. To have quality journalism is a huge homework. But I believe the better the journalism in a society, the better is democracy and the better is society. But the decline of our journalism quality, the decline of our society. I argue when Trump was still president that he will end up his presidency only in four years. Why? I believe in journalism in the US. I believe at the New Yorker. I believe at the New York Times. I believe in CNN, even Fox News. If you compare the number of the density of journalism in the US, or county level, you have small newspapers. They are, they are in distress now. I'm not saying that there is no problem in the US, but the growth and the density of journalism in the US is going to safeguard its democracy from someone who became the president by accident.
1: It, it, I feel like it's so interesting because, like, I was talking to people from Cuba, and they were saying that in a country like Cuba, the the three things that's guaranteed is like education, healthcare, and employment. Um, and that's what they feel is like the the real rights of a democratic country. Whereas, like in the U.S., it's freedom of speech and freedom to gather, um, and it's as if it's like one or the other. Um, because in the U.S., you don't get healthcare and education and um, yeah. employment. So, it's yeah. just it's just it's interesting how it's hard to get one or the other. And in Indonesia, it's like neither. <laughs> yeah. One one other question that I have is, we watch your interview with an Australian channel where you revealed that in your line of work doing this, you've had threats, um, not just to yourself, but also like people have called your family members and, you know, sent like terrorizing messages and things like that. I guess my question is, how do you continue doing human rights work with that? And besides just seeing the violence that continues to happen and being so involved in reporting what's happening, but also like from your story, like it also seeps into your personal life. How, how do you
3: keep doing it? The question is, can I stop? I don't think I can stop. It's been my, it's about... Being me, I'm doing this because it's me. Why I did that, maybe in hindsight because of my mentors. I, I learned a lot from Jos Aitombro, the environmentalist dissident. I learned a lot from my professor, Ari Kudiman, a dissident, sometimes I disagree with. Him. I also learned a lot from1, despite my disagreement with him, and later from Bill Copecks at Harvard University. So, I owe them a lot. You know, I'm just a small town boy in East Java, Jember. The fact that I could go to Harvard, I study at Harvard, I did not have the money, it's all scholarship. So, I'm someone who, who has to pay back a lot of the good things that I received from the communities where I, I learn and move from one from South Africa to Jakarta, to Cambridge, to New York, now in Jakarta. So this is a, for me, it is my paying back time. Can I stop? I don't think so. It's, it's about me. I might be stopped if I, you know, if I die, whether being killed or or died because of illness or accident. Who is the one behind you? Oh,
0: it's my boyfriend. (laughs) Oh,
3: hello. (laughs) He's trying to avoid being on the screen.
0: Yeah, because of the heater, it just made sound, so I asked him to turn it down. <laughs> As
1: always, we encourage you to dig deeper and ask more questions about the topics we talked about here at Sugar Nutmeg. As we mentioned in this episode, there are many different perspectives. If you found this conversation fascinating, Andreas Harsona recommends the book titled Blood and Silk Power and Conflict in Modern Southeast Asia. By Michael
0: Vatikiotis. Ruth here, and I personally recommend highly the book titled The Archipelago of Fear by Andre Volchak. Alexandra, as a film person, recommends the film titled The Act of Killing by Joshua Oppenheimer, which was nominated for the best documentary in the 2014 Academy Award. Andres also mentioned this mind-blowing documentary in the conversation earlier.
1: We want to thank Andreas again for sharing his knowledge and of course continuously challenging us to investigate deeper and think more critically. Thanks for listening and until our next feast this is Alexandra
0: and this is Ruth.